turn in your Bibles to the letter of James in your New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 2, finishing out the chapter today. If you don't have a Bible, there are some down the center column of seats, and I welcome you to grab one of those. Say hey to your neighbor and tell them to pass you a Bible. It's going to be on around 654 or so, if you want to follow along with us in the Pew Bible. We're going to start in verse 14 and read all the way through the end of this chapter. And we're going to read these words out loud together. Y'all ready? All right, let's read together. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So you see, a person that is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we... uh, we're glad to be here uh, in the house of the Lord. We know this is a school, but we've gathered here as your people, and where your people are, um, you're here. And so, God, we acknowledge your presence. We acknowledge uh, the, uh, the authoritativeness of your word, and, Lord, we choose to submit to your word. We stand under it, not over it. And, Lord, we pray very simply that you'd speak to us. We're a a nation that needs to hear from you. We are uh, a people that, uh, that want to fall in line with what you are saying to us. And, and so, Lord, very, very uh, humbly this morning, we say that uh, we ask you to speak to us. Would you um, open our ears and our eyes to what you would have us in this, this practical uh, chapter that James is giving us? And, and more than that, Lord, we pray that we would hear your gospel, uh, that we would see it clearly, and that you change us to look more like Jesus. And we pray that in his great name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Interesting week for those of you that, uh, that live in America. Very interesting week. And uh, I, I just appreciate the last song that we sang. It, I mean, quite, uh, I, I, as I looked at the worship set earlier in the week, I, I wasn't thinking the way I'm thinking right now. Um, but isn't it, doesn't your heart say to you right now, 
that you can't really trust anybody but Jesus. Amen. Um, so, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter where you felt on the election. Uh, uh, I think that our congregation uh, uh, of, of, of many perhaps is, uh, there's, there's some division in our country, obviously. There's some division in the church over this election. And someone asked me, uh, someone was telling me the, the, the plight of a, a different congregation. And I basically said, oh, you know what? I said, we have a military congregation, sort of. Not, not all y'all are military, but this one definitely is. Uh, and I said, there's something about military people that they, they know they're civilian control of the, of the government. And if you don't like who the leader is, you're called to serve anyway. And, uh, and you hold your breath and you vote four more years from now. So um, it really doesn't matter. Uh, you know, charge on. Um, serve the country. Serve your, serve your president. And, uh, and be a good citizen of the, the country that you're given because we're still a great nation. Uh, I really believe that. Um, and I think James is going to sort of uh, speak to that as well. Uh, here's what I know about the Bible. The Bible is infallible. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It's true. You all believe that? Yes. But here are some things that trip me up about the Bible. Sometimes it presents us tensions that are hard to resolve. One of those is the sovereignty of God. I, I'm a I'm a true believer in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God says that, I mean, there's not a gnat flying, there's not a dust on the ground for which God is not in control of, of what those things do. Yet the Bible also tells us that as human beings on the planet, creatures of God, he made us, knows everything about us, there's still a level of responsibility that we have for our actions to include um, our faith and those things that we do in regards to the, uh, what the Bible tells us about God. We're held accountable for them and what we do in regards to them. Here's some others. Jesus is human, but he's also divine. Isn't that hard to get your hands around? God is one God, but he, his, his essence includes three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Bible was written by human authors, but we're told that the Bible was written by God. I mean, can you explain that? The kingdom of God is, we're told in the Bible that it's, it's here right now, yet there's an element of the kingdom that is yet to come that we can't even fathom what it's going to be like. All of those questions, all of those tensions, I mean, if you, if you had to pick well, which one is true, the answer actually is yes. Both of those things exist at the same time. Um, these are all doctrines, important themes that the Bible gives to us that I, I would be honest with you. It's hard, um, even with the words that the Bible gives us, for us to resolve how these tensions exist together. God puts them together. And this is what James does in his in our in our text today. He adds to that list another tension. He's telling us that faith requires work. And if you're familiar with your Bible, um, you might even say, well, that that can't be right. Right. I mean, we're told that um, faith gets us uh, into relationship with God. It's our faith that saves us. My faith is going to eventually get me to heaven. The Bible tells us in many places that our faith doesn't require work. And this is uh, this is true. One of the major things, probably one of the most important things in all the Bible is the doctrine of justification by faith. Here's what Paul, here's what Paul says. Romans 3, 28. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The word justify, I'm going to give you a little theology here up front. The word justify means to declare right. This is a forensic or a legal term. Um, Let me give you an example. Say you owed money to a creditor and you owe a lot of money and that creditor wants his money back and you have no way of paying it back. So he takes you to court. You go to court, you appear before the judge and the judge has you stand up and he's going to issue a verdict. And this is what he says. All right. So you've been cleared of of your obligation. I'm going to forfeit all of your debts. You owe no money. There's no longer uh, any obligation that you have to pay the debt that was yours. You're free from obligation. You are also free to go. That, in a sense, is that's justification. That's what God does for you. Justification is God legally wiping away your debt of sin that you owe to him. And that's not because you did anything to earn it. You can't pray your way into uh, good graces with God. You, you, you can't go to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't be good during the week enough to earn God's favor. We're told in the Bible that God justifies us because of our faith in the person and the work of Jesus. And I mean, that theme really is, is stretched from like all over the Bible, but particularly in the New Testament. Look at these scripture verses. Titus 3, 5. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Different terminology here, uh, but focus your eyes on the word righteousness. The word righteous and justify are equivalents. In fact, Paul in his writings uses them interchangeably. Here's another verse. Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order that by faith, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Very clear message here. We're saved by faith. We're justified by faith. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. One more verse. 2 Timothy 1, 9 who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of him, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. All right. So outside, I mean, these are, I mean, what are, what's, what's true about all these verses? It's true that we're, we're saved not by what we do, but by our faith, our faith in Jesus. Uh, outside of Scripture, one of the ancient catechisms Reformed Catechisms is the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 60 asks this question, how are you righteous before God? And here's the answer, only by true faith in Christ. And this is how this catechism goes on to explain this question. It says, in spite of the fact that I've grievously sinned against God and that I'm ever still prone to all that's evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, imputes to me his righteousness and treats me as if I never committed a single sin. And I would tell you, I mean, that just right there, that's the gospel. And that, that's why the gospel is called good news, because a God who's holy and righteous and demands perfection grants me favor with himself 
that I don't deserve, not because of anything that I do to deserve it, because I can't do anything to deserve it, but because of my simple faith in his son that he sent to die in my place for my sin. And so this is the consensus of all these scripture verses, is that we're justified, we're made right with God by faith, apart from our works, and that's it. I mean, did y'all get that? Get that flavor? So here's the question we got today. What in the world is James talking about? Right? I mean, if, if, if that's what the Bible says, what is James talking about? Um, there's been volumes written about uh, an apparent conflict between James and Paul in regards to this one word. How are we justified? And many would say that James and Paul are fighting against each other. Okay, about justification. I'd like to offer you a different perspective. Um, Really, we can boil this down to, I think, an understanding of context. The context of anything determines the meaning. I'm going to say one word to you all, and I want you to shout out, like out loud, what you know about this word. You ready? Here it is. Dope. Wow. All right. So, all right. Those are the right. Those are the right responses. I didn't know that one would come out first, though. Check you out. So, all right. So, I I mean, I'm I'm not a baby boomer, but I'm like on a borderline. So I I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, I had three sets of friends growing up, particularly in high school, early 80s. Uh, I was kind of smart. And so I had the gifted and talented folk. And then I was a band kid. I was a drum major in my high school band. And so I had the band people. I played tennis. And so I was I had an athletic group of friends. And then. I mean, I hung out with the with the druggies, the potheads, (laughs) because they lived in my neighborhood. I mean, they were my neighbors and other things. All right. So. So check it out. If you grew up when I grew up and you said the word dope, it meant one thing. It meant. How do you know, Gail? It meant marijuana. It meant pot. All right. Fast forward 15 years. You say the word dope. Dope is talking about a person, a a particular type of person. It's a person that's like a doofus. They're awkward, like an outcast. Fast forward to today. and, And this is how most of the young people, my kids would be included in this. The millennials are using this word. It's like dope. It's like that's bad. That's like swinging. It's happening. Right. I mean, three, I mean, a 30 year span, that same word is used in three different ways. And it all depends on context. And I would tell you, it's the same thing in life. It's true of literature. It's definitely true of scripture. And it's true in regards to what we're reading here about justification. Um, Jay, uh, Jay Gresham Machen is a. very well-known conservative Presbyterian, and he kind of brings uh, he brings to light what we should think about uh, this apparent tension between Paul and James. He says, Paul and James are coherent in their teaching. They're not divided. They're actually talking about the same thing. It's just a matter of context. Paul is not using justification in one way and James using justification in another. Rather, the difference lies in how each uses faith and works. Listen to this. The faith that James condemns is different than the faith that Paul commends. 
The, the work that James commends is different than the works that Paul condemns. And so think about that, that James is condemning idle faith, faith that does not work, that, that's not active. Paul is condemning working to earn our salvation. Same words, different contexts. James says faith is validated or, or perhaps a better word, it's proven by our works. Here's what the reformers said. The reformers that initiated the Protestant Reformation that, ends, that, that happens and, and makes us the church that we are. The reformers said it this way. We're saved by faith alone, but that faith uh, does not remain alone. It's faith that can't remain alone. And so what James is doing for us in his own special way is he's helping us put in, in right perspective the tension between faith and and work. And I think what James does uh, so adequately is he's challenging us as people of God in, in terms of false faith and true faith. And that really is what we're going to talk about today. False faith versus true faith. Verse 14. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James is asking all of us a question. How do you really know you're a Christian? I mean, how do you know? Can can every brand of faith save you? Can I live like hell six days a week and then waltz myself up in the church, shout some hallelujahs, lift my hands up, sing some songs, take communion and call myself a Christian? I mean, can I do that? Can can I profess to believe in Jesus? Can I say with my words that Jesus is God, that he's divine, came from eternity to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross in my place for my sin, but reject some of the tenets of Christianity? Can I re- reject some major doctrines and call myself a Christian? Can I, can I say that I will absolutely not forgive people? Can I say, I mean, yeah, I like to lie. I'm not going to add. I'm not going like, to I, I just like to lie. I'm not going to stop. Can I say I don't want to turn the cheek? Can I say that tithing is for, I mean, why should we tithe? I'm not giving away my money. How do you know that you really possess true faith? And James is going to answer that question for us, and he's going to give us four examples. So James is about giving us examples. He's very practical in his teaching, and in these four examples, he's giving us case studies of what it means to possess true faith and false faith. And he starts with false faith. Verse uh, Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith that itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so this first example that James gives us is a false faith, and he calls it dead faith. Dead faith is faith that's without compassion. And so he gives us this picture of a brother and a sister, and they're poor. In fact, I would, you know, I'm, I'm, my mother grew up in the country of Chapel Hill, and she would call this dirt poor. They were so poor that the Greek behind these words tells us they were so poor, they probably were practically naked. So when it says uh, poorly clothed, it means they barely had something to wrap around their bodies, probably no shoes. If they had any clothes on at all, they were severely worn. Um, and they were showing parts of their body. 
And so James says dead faith would be seeing the plight of someone in great need and even speaking kind words to them, but doing nothing else to back it up. I mean, in no way coming to their aid. And this is the note we ended on last week. Remember verse 12 and 13 of the text that we looked at last week? Here's what it says. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is saying that one of the evidences of our, of our faith, of true faith, is mercy. If you don't show mercy, then you're likely not a Christian. Why? Because Christians show mercy. And if we don't show mercy, God's going to judge us for that. And so in verses 15 and 17, he adds to that list compassion. He says, Christians show compassion. And so if you don't have it in you to show compassion for those that clearly need it, then something is wrong with your faith. Compassion is an evidence of faith. Dead faith greets a needy brother with kind words and warm wishes, but there's no follow up that meets their need. Dead faith offers trite words and meaningless advice. It's like saying it's walking up to a homeless person shivering and saying it's cold out here or or seeing a a young lady who uh, is in dire need of help. Perhaps she's like bone thin and walking up to her and saying, man, you should. I mean, you look skinny. You should eat more. I mean, does, does that not sound right? Just inappropriate things to say. James is saying this is dead faith. And he lifts his shoulders and shrugs and says, what good is that? Here's the thing, and this is, this is important to say because some of you are compassion and mercy people, and you want to do everything for everybody. James is not suggesting that believers have to do everything, but he is saying that we got to do something. Amen. Look at verse 17 one more time. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, the church can't even do everything. We, we can't, as a single church, We can't help every organization, every person. We can't do it all. But it's saying that we individually, us collectively, can do something. His second example is in verse 18. It's an example of useless faith. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So the second example is useless faith. And useless faith is is knowledge about God, emotion toward God, or perhaps even um, a commitment to the church. But it's all masquerading as faith. I mean, ever seen that? I mean, some people that are zealous in many different ways. but what they have is not real. It's it's just it's hype. Somebody said that. Somebody said hype when I was talking about dope. <laughs> it's it's hype. And so the context here is important. Remember, James is talking to uh, to Jewish Christians. They're living in hostile environments. They've been dispersed because uh, of the hostility toward them from from pagan uh, people, from Gentiles. And, and they're in persecution. And, and think about it. What do, the, what do people in persecution do? I mean, they fret about their lives. More importantly, these 
these Jews in persecution were fretting about their faith. They were thinking, man, I don't know if my faith is going to last. I mean, I don't know if I got the right faith because, I mean, who wants to be persecuted? And so James is making one simple point, and he brings this up. He's like, you believe in demons? Y'all talk back to me. Y'all believe in demons? Yes. You heard of, like, all right, you might, you might not believe in them. Have you heard of demons? So uh, three quick questions. Um, are demons Christians? All right, no, 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 no. Um, do demons have good theology? Be confident. Absolutely. Think about every time Jesus encountered a person possessed by, you know, an unknown spirit, a, a demon. And before Jesus could come up to them, they like saying who he was and saying, Jesus, son of the living God. I mean, why are you coming up to me? Are you going to torment me before the time, you know, before the judgment? I mean, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was before Jesus even opened his mouth. And they were uh, they were reciting the redemptive plan of God that he was going to at some point judge them as they smite them um, without Jesus doing anything. I would tell you, demons have good theology. They got better theology than most of us in this room. Absolutely. Yes. One more question. Do demons have faith? Look at verse 18. I'm sorry. Verse 19. Check it out. Demons believe. All right. So um, that's the word faith right there, folks. Demons, demons have faith. Here's the question. What type of faith do demons have? Here's my contention. Many of us have faith. Probably not none of y'all, but some of those other people who call themselves Christians. Some of us have faith. It's useless faith. It's faith. It's, it's something masquerading as faith, but not true faith. Three types. The first is knowledge based faith. Someone that has a knowledge based faith knows a lot about God. They know the Bible. They know the concepts. They might even be able to articulate the gospel. Um, these kind of people sometimes come to church. They don't like the singing. They don't, they don't even understand. Like, why are we standing up singing these songs? Why is it that we keep repeating these words over and over and over again? Bring on the sermon. They're like the people in Acts 17 that Paul talked to that just they were zealous. They, they were stoics and philosophers just wanting to be uh, tantalized and ruminate over just high lofty thoughts about stuff. And the Bible is one. You know, the Bible has a lot of lofty thoughts about stuff. Right. That's how those people are. They don't allow what's in their head to get to their heart, though. It's never acted out. And that is the issue with knowledge based faith. It's just you got all this information that stays in your head and you just go through life with all the right answers. But no passion, no devotion towards God, no growth in your character or even desire. It's just all in your head. A second kind of masquerading faith would be emotion based faith. I love these people. Uh, these are people that are constantly talking about God, God, this, God, that God said to me, God, the Holy Spirit showed me this. My Lord, they're going from one experience to another. I mean, these kind of people, they church hop. They're like in three or four churches. They get this experience there. They get this word there. Oh, man, did you? I mean, I just love what they do right there in this church. 
They love to worship. They love to go to concerts, retreats, conferences. They go to the biggest and the best church service, wherever it is. They're into all kinds of stuff. But when you peer into their life, their life is like a roller coaster. Up and down. And their life is like a roller coaster because their faith is like a roller coaster. Up and down. And because their faith is a roller coaster, the foundation of their faith is not their head and their heart. And their heart is leading them and it's going up and down. Their faith goes with their emotions. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is wonderful when everything is going great. But when life starts to squeeze them in, they hate Jesus. They hate the church. They hate Christians. It's an emotionally up and down faith. And then you have commitment based faith. And these, are pe- these people are special to me because I'm, I'm like this. This is like this is my people right here. Churches are filled with people like this. They faithfully serve. They're faithful in everything. They're there no matter what. Uh, they even give money. I mean, come on now. They, they give generously because everybody that comes to church doesn't give. Um, these are good folk. They believe the Bible. They believe the Bible is a book for life. It helps them. They read it. They see the Bible is giving them good counsel on how to orient their lives so they know what to do when God has said to do this. But here's the thing about commitment-based people. Sometimes they're, I mean, they're doers. And so sometimes their doing gets in the way of their faith. And if you don't watch it, they will be more committed to doing. When I do something, I feel good. And I assume that feeling good um, has put me in a good stead with God when all they're doing has done is it's gotten in the way of their faith in Jesus. Which one are you? I mean, if you could label, your, I'm not trying to get you to label yourself. And before you label yourself, don't hold on. I'm not trying to get you to label yourself. I mean, I would I, I see myself in all these. And that really is what God wants you to see. False faith would focus on one of those. But true faith engages all of these head, heart, hands. God wants you to be like holistic, doing all of that. He wants you to be in the knowledge. He wants you to have a little emotion when you come to church, not be so stoic. He wants you to actually um, commit, commit to your commit by doing stuff with your faith. God literally wants his truth permeating your entire being so that you are action oriented in all of those ways. I think churches are filled with people who don't know Jesus. And perhaps one of these describes you. But here's what James does in this little particular section. He calls us fools when we dip our toes in false, useless semblances of faith. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Our works don't save us. Instead, faith in Christ alone saves us and our works show that our faith is genuine. The third example is an example of true faith. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so true faith. One example that Abraham gives uh, that uh, James gives us is uh, an example of obedient faith. And the, the, the Bible figure that he uses is, is Abraham. Um, here's what I think Abraham shows us about obedient faith. Um, 
Obedient faith is characterized by surrender. And I think the surrender drives your, your obedience. Um, there's a lot we can say about Abraham. Go back all the way back to Genesis 12, and we're, um, we're just ushered into the story. God appears to Abraham. He's living in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God tells Abraham, hey, so I got a job for you. I want you to leave and go to the land. I'll show you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. All the nations will be blessed through you. I'm going to make your, your descendants as, as great as the, the stars in the sky, as numerous as the, you know, the, the sand on the seashore. And Abraham, Abraham's like, me? And the crazy thing is Abraham does it. I mean, think about that. I mean, many of you have come from other parts of the country, other parts of the world, and you've come to D.C. either in faith that you get a job you came with a, you know, a, a known army job, military job, government job. And I mean, that's a, that's, that's a measure of faith. But can you imagine God just coming up to you and saying, hey, I got a job for you. And he's like, well, what is it? You know, God says, I'll tell you about it later. Um, and then says, oh, by the way, I need you to go to a different place to, to accept that job. I said, well, where is it? Abraham's, um, and, and, and God says, well, start walking and I'll tell you where it is. I mean, that, I mean is that not faith? That's faith and it's obedience. And I wish we could spend a lot of time talking about Abraham, uh, but we can't. But uh, here's the significant thing about Abraham. It's not that he just had faith and did what God said. In verse 21, James brings up this particular thing about Abraham. And it refers to the time when God tested Abraham, telling him to sacrifice his son. Imagine yourself. You're, you're a man living in the desert, God comes to you and says, hey, I want you to go to a far off land. I'm going to make this great for you. It's, it's, I'm going to bless you and the world will be different because of you. And you believe him and you start out on this trek of life with God. You get married, your wife buys into the promise as well, and you just wait and you wait and you wait and nothing happens. And I mean, you start worrying. It's like, well, did God say? I mean, is this is actually going to come to fruition. And then God shows back up again and reminds you again. Yeah, I'm going to make you great. The nation is going to be blessed through you. Uh, I'm going to establish my covenant with you, my special binding agreement with you that all this stuff is going to come to pass. And really, the world is going to be changed by you and your descendants. And so you believe God, you and your wife. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And then your wife just gets tired of waiting. She gets impatient. She's like, you know what? We need to do something to help God out. Just like nudge him to remind him. And she gives you a concubine. (laughs) If your wife gave it to you, why would you refuse it? (laughs) And so you you have an Ishmael. And Ishmael, although he will be a great nation, is not what God intended. And so God, like Abraham was 75 when God first showed up, when Abraham is 99 and God hadn't done that thing that he said he was going to do, shows back up and says, oh, I, you shouldn't have done the Ishmael thing. But my promise is true. I'm going to give you what I promised you. And the world is literally going to be changed when you receive what I give you. And so the, the promise is born. He grows up. God comes back to you and says, I'm glad you're a happy family now. I need you to go sacrifice your son. I mean, that's the story of Abraham. I'm embellishing it. 
go to your Bibles and communicate this week, Genesis 12, all the way to Genesis 22. And that's the thing that James is bringing up, that God had Abraham bring the child of promise. His wife was barren for all those years, could not even have a child. God gives him a miraculous child and then tells him to sacrifice the very thing that the, the very way the promise was going to be uh, enacted, manifested, the, the very way it was going to come true. And Abraham does it. He takes Isaac and some servants up to Mount Moriah, lays him on an altar, takes a knife out. Was, I mean, just going to like stab him in the heart. And an angel of the Lord comes to him and, and stops him in his tracks. Abraham, like what? Thank God for ears, right? Abraham was willing to sacrifice that which was most precious to him. And, and James says this is an example of faith, not just faith, obedient faith. And I think this is what obedient faith looks like. It's, it's you're willing to give up that thing that's, that's most precious to you. Um, think about whatever, whatever it is that you treasure the most, whether that's a person or a thing or something that you get to do. What is that thing that brings you the most joy, that thing that brings you the most esteem, the most self-esteem, that which you've worked the hardest for, that thing that you have gained your complete identity from, God asking you to give that up, to sacrifice it on his altar, and that's what Abraham did. I think people who have true faith are surrendered to God, and that surrender leads to obedience. I think you trust God at that point so completely that you know there's nothing that God can't ask you to do because you know he's a good God and God would never ask you anything to do like a good father uh, for which it would not be good for you if you actually did it. Abraham somehow was able to believe that. You obey God not because you're afraid of what God might do to you if you don't obey him. You obey because you know it's the right thing to do. You obey because you want to be friends with God. And that sounds crazy for us to say that. But that's the summation of what James says about Abraham's life. And of course, James is getting that. He says it in verse 23. He's getting, it, getting that from two other places in the Old Testament that says James actually was, uh, Abraham actually was a friend of God. That's what Abraham is called. And think about it. What do friends do for friends? All right. So, I mean, so friends do a lot of things for friends. Some nice, some mean. Um, but I think among the things that we do for our true friends is I mean, we're willing to sacrifice for them. We're willing to give things up. I mean, give them a piece of candy, give them some sugar, give them an egg. I mean, those, I mean, more than that, you're willing to give them. I mean, sometimes your very life, Abraham reasoned in his heart, Hebrews 12 tells us, even if I sacrifice my son, really my only true son, the son of promise, God is going to raise him back up to life. And I think that's how much Abraham trusted God. I think this is true also. I think Abraham said in his heart, but even if God doesn't do the things he's promised, he's still good. And I'm going to trust him. Verse 24 says, for this, Abraham was justified by his faith, not by his works. His faith and his works working alongside each other. The last example is in verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out 
by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Um, this last example is an example of courageous faith. Um, Rahab is an interesting character in the Bible. We only know from her from three places in Scripture. Joshua chapter 2, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 30, 31, and then right here in verse 25 in the second chapter of, of James. Um, Abraham, uh, Rahab, I can't get off Abraham. Rahab is interesting because she was not a can. I mean, she was a Canaanite, not a Hebrew. Uh, she didn't grow up with a, a history of going, you know, of, of being around the people of God or being a, a God worshiper. She was pagan. Worse than that, she was a prostitute. And so in Joshua 2, uh, we learn that somehow we aren't told how Rahab comes to trust the one true God. So much so that when 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 she hears that the spies from the Hebrew people are coming into Jericho to check the, the city out so they might come and overthrow it. And they're going to like decimate all that are in it because of harem warfare. Um, she decides that she's going to receive the spies into her home, hide them from the authorities that also know that Israel is about to come and decimate Jericho. And for that, Hebrew 11 hails Rahab for her faith. James says this. He says she was justified by her works. In other words, what she did, this courageous example, uh, proved her faith. So let's ask ourselves, what's courageous faith? Um, what, I mean, what does it look like? I think for, for Rahab, courageous faith looks like this. It's doing the right thing, not to gain an advantage, not to get a promotion, not to be seen as a hero. It's doing the right thing because, I mean, you want to be pleasing to God. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us about Rahab. She came somehow to know and wanted to honor the one true God. And that was what drove not just her faith, but her works. That's courageous. What does that look like for us? Courageous faith is risking perhaps your own career advancement when it may compromise your integrity. I think courageous faith is working through conflict, not pulling back or brushing, under, brushing it under the rug. It's rushing. Uh, it's refusing to talk about people behind their back because it's easy to talk about people behind their back. It's being real at church. It's working through church hurt and not just leaving when you don't like what the pastor says or when your friend doesn't go to the church anymore or, I mean, things doesn't go your way. It's working through all those things because that's what people of faith do. Courageous faith is giving generously of your time, your talent, and your money because you trust that the Lord is going to use your labor to advance his kingdom in, in amazing ways. I think these and many more ways are examples of courage. These are evidences of faith at work. So let me, let me summarize what I think James is saying with a scripture verse from Paul. Ephesians 2, 8, 8 through 10. This is Paul and James agreeing with each other. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is Paul saying? He's saying, firstly, salvation comes by faith and, and through grace. Faith and grace work simultaneously. They, 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 they always go together. So he's saying we're justified by faith, not by works. But then in verse 10, 
he says, but our faith is going to end up being works. Why? Because God made him. Mean, that's what he made us for. He made us so that our faith would have an outworking to it. And that outworking would look like doing good works. You're saved by faith, but that faith does not remain alone. It results in good works. And I think that's what we're in life and on the journey together about. Saved by faith, but that literally, um, for the right reasons, we are obeying God and doing good works. And I think that's an articulation of the gospel. I think that's why God put us here on the planet, called to himself to live out in this earth. And I think that's what he's inviting all of us to, a faith that works. And so as we close, let's ask ourselves, I mean, are you a Christian? Ask yourself that. Are you a Christian? Does your, does your faith possess an outward expression to it? Does your faith actually work? Perhaps you're here today and your faith has been masquerading um, in one of the other useless ways that James talks about. Perhaps you're a person that just likes knowledge or that you're one of those emotional people or, I mean, you're highly committed, but you lack the substance of what true faith is. And if that's you today, then uh, James and Paul, his cohort, would basically tell you, I mean, repent. Perhaps you'll hear God saying to you that true faith a faith that that bears true has an action component to it. Let's pray. Lord, we call ourselves people of faith, and I pray that we are. But more importantly, Lord God, we want to be people who um, who behind the scenes, when no one is actually looking at us, not only exhibit faith, but, uh, but have the, the action to back it up. Lord, help us to be people who are people of mercy and compassion, who see the person in need, and because that's what Christians do. We, we meet the needs of people who can't help themselves, that you would drive us to action. But we pray that you would help us when we when we tend toward uh, masquerading um, faithlessness. Lord, rebuke us for those uh, those ways that we um, that our faith isn't genuine. And then give us true faith. What an example Abraham has given us, and even Rahab. Lord, would you make us like that? Give us courage to, to be people of faith. Lord, if there's anybody here today that um, they're here amongst us, but they don't have true faith, God, I pray that you speak to their hearts. Faith is a gift. It's a gift of God that he would come and call us and regenerate us, that he would begin this process in us, despite us, that he would make us uh, to be able to hear the call of the gospel and give us courage to respond. And so I pray that you do that today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.